0: This is Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, the Channelnomics podcast that connects you with channel chiefs, thought leaders, and executives about what it takes to get the next generation of tech to market. Here's your host, Larry Walsh, the CEO and chief analyst of Channelnomics.
1: Hey, everybody, As the Nice Lady Said. I'm Larry Walsh, and welcome back to Changing Channels, where we talk about what it takes to get products to market. And getting products to market is increasingly more of a consumer exercise. We used to call this consumerization of the enterprise when we'd say that buyers were bringing their consumer experiences or what they did in their personal lives into their purchasing processes and considerations. And it's not trivial to call that consumerization. B2B buyers are increasingly looking to have similar similar experiences in the way that they research, the way that they buy, and the way that the products get fulfilled. Uh, In fact, we did a study at Channelnomics, we did a study of Global 2000 companies, and we asked them about what their expectations were. And they are looking for quotes, they're looking for information in hours, at the most days. And what partners then tell us is that it sometimes takes them weeks to get quoting back from their vendors to get the information they need to put out a proper proposal. Um, you know, When vendors talk about stimulating the channel or getting more performance out of the channel, they typically frame it in the terms of fuel. If they put more fuel in the engine, the engine will run faster, the engine will run farther. And that's, you know, in in the channel parlance, fuel is often in the, you know, it comes in the form of money. So whether that's, you know, deeper discounts or higher rebates or spiffs for, you know, selling specific products or some other monetary incentive, this is all the fuel that vendors pour into their channels in order to get partners to do more. Well, partners don't always react or respond to fuel the way we think they will. And in fact, what we found at Channelnomics is that partners will typically gravitate towards a vendor that is easier to do business with, or as we like to call it, you know, has less friction. Now, why would that be? Is because if it's easier to do business with you, then they can move faster. They can respond and react to the customer and react to the market easier than they can with those that are more difficult. So, fuel versus friction. Um, what we found in our research is that vendors that are easier to do business with tend to have three times to five times the partner share of wallet than those that have more friction. And again, this is purely because partners have an easier time or can move faster. If they're given the choice between more money on a slower or a low volume of sales versus turning over more sales with a with a moderate profitability, they'll gravitate towards the easier, the easier processes, the easier way of doing business. And that brings us to our guest, Kim King of Hitachi Ventura. She is the senior vice president of Strategic Partners and Alliances. And Hitachi has been doing something which I find almost unbelievable. And I am not kidding when I say that because they have over the past couple of years have developed systems to actually take most of the friction out of the quoting process for the partners. They're giving partners the ability to go in and build their own quotes, name their own prices, get access to the incentives that are available to them and do it at speed. So I'm not going to share. I'm not going to take the the punchline away from all this, and because I brought Kim on here on changing channels, because she's the one who's been overseeing this. She's the one that's brought this to reality. And I will tell you is that I have shared Kim's story and Hitachi Ventura's story with a few of a few other channel chiefs that I know, and they I just based on the description that I've shared with them, which Kim will go into greater detail on. They're envious of what we're going to share with you today. So, with that, I'm going to say, Kim King, welcome to Changing Channels.
2: Thanks, Larry. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, thanks. You know, thanks for being here. And I'm glad we're able to get the internet in New Hampshire for you. (laughs)
2: yeah don't say anything the wind will kick up and my internet will go out there you go you know (laughs) the
1: the old the old man in the mountain is gone so there's no saving you now right so no
2: no i have my son in the back room on the you know on the bicycle making sure that it still runs for me. there you go (laughs)
1: that's that's a bit more reliable than the hamster they used to have that's right for sure so Kim, what we were describing, many people would recognize when we're talking about automating and optimizing the quoting process for partners, this is the promise of CPQ, of configure price quote. Okay. Um, but Hitachi has gone on a much different journey than that. So I, I, why don't you first tell us what it is that, that Hitachi has been doing in terms of automating pricing and quoting for partners and why you did it?
2: Sure. So we completely revamped our process right we we i spent a lot of time with and i have to say you know shout out to my team i have an amazing team that works on the cpq and my my partner team that's just sort of runs the overall program so they really looked at what were we doing internally and how are we driving um, more efficiency and automation for our own sales organization? And the team came back and said, "We can do this for partners." And I said, "Great, can I have it next week?" You know my normal sort of answer is, how quickly can we do this?" And it was so important for us. We, they got it done really quickly, right So now we've had it rolled out for about a year and a half. I mean the, it's amazing when you look at where we went to, right And my whole goal, as you know, since I joined Hitachi Ventura was ease of doing business. The number one complaint that I heard from my partners was you're really hard to do business with. It takes me weeks to months to get quoting and pricing done. Um, We don't have any deal reg. We don't have all the basics, right? To me, this was basic blocking and tackling. And so, looking at the overall process from beginning to end, it took us 90 days to take what we did internally and roll it out to a small set of partners, which took us from four weeks, three weeks, two weeks, whatever it was, to literally an hour for our partners to get an approved quote in their hands with all the automated pricing and configuration and discounts that were applied to them. And we've made it better and better every time we've upgraded it. Um, So the initial partners we rolled it out to were in North America and in Australia. Um, And then from there, we've rolled it out around the globe. And today we see 60% of all of our partner deals go through partner automation where they're approved in with, within an hour uh, for basic approval and they can come back for additional discounting. And typically what we see is that's less than four hours to get that additional discount if it's required. Um, but really amazing, I think, work by the team.
1: Yeah. Under an hour. And, an hour. and, and so, so and this is what I mean is that this goes beyond the dream of CPQ and in no disrespect to the CPQ vendors out there. They do a remarkable job, but it's not an hour, to get this thing done. And that's why I say is that the, when I've told this story to a couple of your peers, they're like going, no, I really want to hear about this because it can't be true. But but <laughs> you, it goes well, be, what's that?
2: I was gonna say, you know, it's true because you've seen it happen in real life. So I, yeah, I, I, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can honestly say that I have witnessed this. I've witnessed the, how this works, um, but it's more than just being able to do it fast. Right. It's it, it's about giving the partners access to information that used to be it, it closely guarded like state secrets. Right. Like you didn't want the partners to know everything or you didn't, you know, the ability for the partners to be able to see their incentives, to be able to see their profit stack, you know, attach the products, to be able to understand and actually make decisions in real time. That was something that was, you know, taboo uh, or in many places still is.
2: Right. Well, I think part of it, we were trying to also change the perception of Hitachi Ventara, right? Hard to do business with, really expensive, no margin, not flexible, right? We've completely wiped all of that out. We're easy to do business with, partners are making significant margins, front-end and back-end with us, And we're giving them opportunities, especially around new account acquisition or new market or new product acquisition and driving those and tech refreshes. So our goal was really to show them how they were gonna profit from working with us and how then, you know, as being a key partner of theirs, right? We weren't oversubscribed. They have this amazing ability to make double digit margins with us. And it's easy for them to do that and see where they're going to make those margins and drive those dollars and how they wanted to allocate those, right? Do they keep them? Do they give them back to the customer? It sort of flows through the whole value chain, right? For our customers and our partners.
1: That takes, as you described, that takes a lot of work. And a lot of introspection on understanding your products, your pricing, your own margin tolerances. What was that like? You said 90 days to map that out, but it took you years to actually build it. So, what was it? What did you discover along the way?
2: Yeah so the so the team prior to rolling it out partners it took them 2 years to go through that self discovery process right really understand what were they willing to give how were they willing to work it out specifically with those um with the end users and our sales team, right? The sales team always wants more and more and more, right? And so, what was the floor that we were willing to go through, and still, still understand how we could drive the right engagement with both our customers and our partners? And so, they all the a lot of the hard work, I would say, was done prior to the the rolling it out of, for the partner community. And then we just looked at what were the stop gaps we needed to put in. How did, would we ensure that we could drive the right behaviors? And I think some of the other key items when we look at it, right, it's it's kind of self-learning as well, right? So we're constantly looking 180 or 90 days back, right? We're looking a couple of months back and making sure, do we have the best price? Is it a market price for this geography? What, is the, what did that customer buy at last time, right? And so you're taking the analytics into consideration too, which is some of the things that we've done over the last year and a half since we've rolled it out, right? Really trying to put the right tools and resources into that understanding of the best price possible for the end user and then also for that partner to be competitive in that opportunity. And so, you know, it's really important for them. They have to decide, right, are they going to give up a lot of margin or are they going to hold that margin back and drive that into their overall profitability as a partner? But we want them to be able to make that decision and not take it away from them. So it was a lot of sort of introspection, like you said, and decision making on our part um, that we had to trust our partner community to do the right thing.
1: So it's interesting that you describe it like that. You want to give the partners the ability to make decisions on their own. The partners give them the ability to make choices. I want to come back to that because in order to grant that power to your partners, this also means that you had to give up a tremendous amount of control. That is not necessarily in the DNA of a mature, large enterprise vendor. So how, what was, what did you have to do to culturally get Hitachi Ventara to actually accept that they were going to do better if they did not exercise or let their hands off the levers as, as they've traditionally done?
2: So a couple of different things, I think primarily what we looked at was the velocity to close right business. And so one of the things that we hadn't really been looking at was what is our created and closed in quarter. And when you look at created and closed in quarter, it was pretty dismal, I think. And if anybody who's trying to control things too tightly, you're not going to get, you can't get velocity and volume, right. And control things at the same time. And so I asked everyone to trust me and to trust the team that this was the right thing to do. And what we saw, I think we shared the numbers with you. I mean, it was amazing, right? So in the first couple of quarters, we went from 13% created and closed in quarter to 65% by Q4 and created and closed in quarter. And right now we sit at right about that 60% every quarter of creating closing opportunities in quarter. And a lot of them in what we call our commercial space, right, which is 100% partner led, which has a mix of enterprise and mid-range, you know, middle of road and small businesses. But these are customers that have needs. They wanted those needs met right away. They can't wait forever. They have a change or maybe they have a challenge that they want to deal with. And if, if a partner can answer that immediately, then they're, and they're first to, to bid it, you know, usually they'll win that opportunity. And so that's where we saw that we were able to track it and show that it worked. And so finance let it go a little further and a little further, right? In operations, so that, you know, we're starting to see that not a lot of special pricing requ- requests that our, our street price is pretty aggressive in the market um, and that we're competitive overall from a product perspective. And because we can move quicker than our competitors, our partners are pretty aggressive about go- going and taking that pricing to their customer.
1: So that's the inside view of this. That's what you were, you, you went through and demonstrated that to your own people. Yeah. But how do the partners take this? Because there's a long tradition of horse trading between, Mm -hmm. between your partner sellers and your sellers and your deal desk. And you go back and forth. And by the time you're able to get this out to the customer all of those decisions have been made and not by choice. And it's just sort of like it happens as a part of the process. What's it like to actually go back to the partner and say, Hey, you know, it's up to you how you want to do this.
2: Yeah. I think that was probably the, biggest challenge for our partner community. And in the beginning, it took them a while to sort of adopt it. And that's why I think as you looked at, as we looked at our numbers, right, the do- adoption was slow and then gradually they realized they had control and then it got better and better and better. And that's where we saw the volume and the velocity really take off from our partner community. But what's interesting is a lot of this, you know, a lot of this goes through our distributors. And so they're the ones that are driving a lot of the quoting and they actually <laughs> one distributor. I won't, Will remain nameless, came back to us and said, We're actually slowing down giving quotes to partners because it's so quick, the turnaround and the way that you guys are able to do, you know, provide us with all the information that we feel like we're adding zero value. So that's, it's sort of, you know, was this sort of tug, right? And we kept saying, well, give them access, let them understand what they're seeing, help them understand, right? So that they understand the complexity of what's going on. And so the adoption rate really just for partners, like I said, They don't believe it. Kind of like you came to me and said, I'll believe it when I see it. We had a little bit of that in the beginning, but once they started to see that adoption and what they could do and what was available to them, it it really opened up their eyes. And right. Remember we wrap this in a, brand new portal and a new deal registration process that we automated and, and really drove. I mean, all of these things were like slow adoption in the beginning when we look at it, right. Partners were like, I can't believe you're, and we gave them so much automation. They actually didn't even understand it in the beginning. Right. So we, we had to sort of slow down and take them through that process a little, a little, a little more deliberately versus just here it is. Good luck type of thing. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I don't, I'm not going to ask you the name, which distributor um, we could guess, but I'm not going to ask you to do it. Uh, it. But it, that is a bit of a, an endorsement as well as an indictment. Isn't it to mm-hmm. say that we had to slow it down because we're not adding value. Doesn't that speak volumes about the current state of the art when it comes to doing coding for partners and quoting through the channel?
2: Yeah, it, I, I, It's, and I think this is, this is where, you know, for me, you have to trust your channel and you have to trust the partners that are out there that they're going to do the right thing. And I think trust isn't one of those things that, you know, I mean, if you talk to most sales organizations, right? there, saying, oh, we can't trust anybody. They're only here for fulfillment. I don't know how many times I heard that, right? We've heard those conversations before. At some point, you have to trust that people are adults. They wouldn't be in business as long as they are, and they wouldn't be successful as partners if they weren't out there doing the right things. And so it is, it's a little bit, I think, you know, we've, the good news is with this, we've been able to even shift our relationship with our distributors to really drive um, engagement and some of the key items that we want them to do because they don't have to do all of this configuration and quoting and re-quoting that they were doing before. So we've driven them more towards lead development, new partner recruitment, onboarding, micro-learning, right? All the things that we want them to do that are truly value-add as a distributor, they have more time to do because they're not doing all the blocking and tackling because we've automated that for them.
1: You know, that's actually sounds a really wise shift in using your distributors, better assets, because as you know, there's no shortage of distribution skepti- skeptics out there that say, well, look, they're declining in value. What, what value are they adding? But there's still a lot of value in things that do come through distribution as a result of, the, of their other assets or other capabilities that drive partner performance.
2: Definitely, I think distributors are so um, I think undervalued as a as a part of our overall ecosystem. I think, and I've seen a massive shift from our distribution community. From the they have the leverage from a marketing. Many of them have their own agencies today, right? They we've developed this sort of go to market around inside partner managers that they are driving value and go to market and really engagement with new partners though, and then managing that long tail of partners for us. Right. So if you think about the capabilities that you can give them, if you automate a lot of the stuff that they shouldn't have to do, that's just, you know, it just, it really makes the investment in distribution so much more, you know, really worth it.
1: Yeah. So Kim, one of the, one of the issues that I I track personally is non-standard pricing or special pricing. And because I hear this all the time is like, well, how do we get the partners to, how do we incent them? Well, let's change their discounts and let's put these requirements in. And then I go and look at what what the vendors are actually doing. They're like, oh, well, okay. 80% of our deals are going through special pricing, which negates everything we just talked about. Mm -hmm. But you're saying you're seeing fewer special pricing requests. What's making the difference here? What's actually driving down the need for partners to come back and say, "Hey, we need a little bit more. We need to sweeten this deal in order to be able to win."
2: Yeah, we're so just numbers wise, we're only seeing about fifteen percent of our deals go through special
1: pricing requests, as a, as opposed to what? What was it before?
2: Uh, it was flipped. It was probably eighty five percent.
1: Wow, that's a big yeah. difference.
2: Big difference, huge yeah. for us, right? So I would say, and most of those uh, special pricing requests are in you know markets where. You know, it's a it's a little tumultuous, right? You have a a weird competitor. So if you look at sort of China, right, with Huawei, or you know other markets where you have a specific competitor that's targeting a market or targeting, we have to be more aggressive and support that partner in that in that arena. Um, but for mo- the most part because partners can see and select which discounts they want, right? And which promotions they want to put in there. And because we're driving that street price, the best to the best of our ability to support them, they're trusting that it's the right price. and, And it's holding in the market because they're winning the deals. So I think that like we said in the beginning, they're able to trust the overall process. And then really they're only coming back to us. We're seeing it in, you know, where there's government tenders or there's a specific competitor that's trying to be more aggressive in that market or something that happens, you know, that is out of bounds. And that's where we're seeing that 15%, right. Versus um, or, you know, it's, it's with a bigger partner like a GSI that, and there's multiple folks bidding on it, right. That we need to be just a little bit more aggressive about it, but.
1: Yeah. So it truly is, because to me, whenever I think about non-standard pricing, it should be the outlier. It shouldn't be the rule. And what you're describing is, is that there are situations which do require special attention. So it does sound like you've, you've flipped the script on this.
2: Definitely. And, um, Mm -hmm. and there, you know, we still have markets that don't have, um, that aren't currently using the, our automated pricing tool. And that we made the decision uh, last week in a meeting that, we're going 100%, right? So our goal is there any markets where we didn't have that or we didn't think that it was it was a comfort for us, right? There were some markets where people were like not as 100% comfortable. We're t- lifting that up and saying, we're gonna do this worldwide for everyone, yeah. yeah.
1: All right. So you've gone from 85% of your deals going through special pricing to about 15%, not hard numbers, but we'll just say approximations, right? Mm -hmm. What about partner lift? Because when I tell other, you know, your peers and the people who work for you, that, you know, that the average partner is originating less than 30% of the sales that are flowing through the channel. Most of it is originating with you or if not, it's being claimed that it's originating with you. Are you seeing a difference in the in the percentage or the proportion of deals that the partners are bringing in the door versus what you're pushing out to them?
2: Oh, significantly, we're seeing. Um, I would say probably we went from about 30 percent of partner created um, to probably 65 percent. Um, in some geos, it's about 70 percent. So I would say on average, we're about 65 percent are being generated and created from partners and coming back to us. Um, And then, so we put, we've really doubled down on Uh, Pipeline development and growth, and driving those engagement with partners so that we can really provide. I wanted to get it to more of a 50 50 where we're driving just as much to them as they're driving to us. And so we've had to catch up with our marketing tools, which we did this year, right? So I think the additional capabilities around sort of marketing hub content, um, really driving that overall engagement through the partner portal, which we upgraded this this year, that marketing piece. Um, And then the most recent release of our partner portal also provides them with MDF spend return on MDF, what are they doing? And so they're able to actually see where those dollars are going and how they're turning them around. And then we're driving engagement. So we've seen a huge, I want to say it's a threefold increase in the activity on the marketing hub that's really driving usage year over year, which helps us right with that and then development for them. So, um, yeah. We've just seen huge, I mean, double digit numbers. I mean, even the new part, the new account acquisition, um, I want to say tripled this year with partners. I don't want to give you specific numbers, but I will say it's pretty, it's when I shared the numbers just from Q3 with our CRO, he was like, are you sure that number's right? That number seems really big. And I said, yeah, that's what new partner, new account acquisition through partners was in Q3. And he was just shocked. So um, I think that we've just seen some significant growth across the board and we've, we've increased the number of partners we have you know, across the world as well. So that's good for us.
1: So it is, you know, you actually can, you can, you know, through this process and through this quoting engine, you can actually see, I would imagine, almost in near real time, the difference it's making in terms of productivity.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We see it just across the board. The partners are more, like we said, more productive. We can expand and really see where partners are active. We see the distribution. We see the growth uh, month over month, quarter over quarter. We're tracking, I mean, we're tracking real time and pipeline. Um, and like we said, we look at created and closed. We look at partner engagement. Uh, we look there's a bunch of metrics, leading and lagging metrics that we're really trying to understand. And so if any of those go down or move in a different direction, we're digging in right away to understand how is that affecting us and, and why is it, why are partners either pulling back or why are they leaning in and what should we do more of?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I also hear, and in fact, in our in our annual channel chief outlook study, you you and people like you, the the leaders of channel organizations, talk about the difficulties in getting access to de- meaningful and impactful data. So now you have this all this data that's able to you're able to see the triggers, the things that are actually working and not working. What were the surprises? What did you learn that you didn't know before you went into this?
2: Wow, so there was there was a bunch of different things, right? I think um, really how many partners were actually transacting with us when we look at that? I mean, we didn't know, right, prior to two years ago, we didn't know how many partners were transacting in a quarter, how many end user accounts were they driving and of those end user accounts, right, how many opportunities, so there's opportunities, end users, partners, and then you sort of look up through the distributors, right? So we were able to see all the way down from, our distributors. How many partners are they actively working with? Of those partners, how many active customers? And of those customers, how many active you know opportunities do they have across the board? And when you see all of those numbers start to become larger, right, and more engaged, you really start to think, "Wow, this is working." Right, from our perspective, right. Versus, well, we think it's this number, or we think it's that, right? I think challenges that I've always seen in the past from a channel perspective, and you know, this is right. You have to sort of. Um, really, sort of look at it and say, you know, this is how we're proving that we should be a valid person at the table, right? We, we have to have a seat at the table from a channel perspective, which typically it's, oh, you guys are overlay, or like I said earlier, you know, you guys are just driving, you know, you're not really driving incremental, it's just fulfillment. I, if I heard fulfillment one time when I first joined Hitachi, I probably heard it 100 times from the from our previous CRO, right? And so we can actually show that today, right? We can show the value of the channel. And I think that's so important to go to anyone from our CRO, our CEO, you know, our president of the business unit and sit down and have an intelligent conversation of, how much pipeline is growing, how many new partners are interacting and at transacting with us, how many net new customers, right? Did we drive in, in a given quarter? How many opportunities do we create and close in that quarter, right? And how many partners have certified on our solutions? And so when you start to really look at those metrics, you are seeing the engagement metrics, right? That was so important to show partner engagement. And it's not just, you know, we said, oh, well, partner engagement is that they completed the certification. That's not partner engagement. Partner engagement is they created close and they're selling for you and they're happy about it. Right. Not that they had to do it, but they, they, they're enjoying doing it with you.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I applaud you because that's you know you know, they, we should actually have this enshrined somewhere in the channel when, <laughs> when things are going well, sales is doing something good. When things are going bad, blame the channel.
2: Exactly. <laughs> you know,
1: and, I, and, I, and I think that honestly, that's really one of the challenges that we all face. And you have a weapon now that can sh- not just make results, but also prove that they're working. So I think that's, it's pretty remarkable, Kim. Exactly. Um, look, I know a lot of, like I said to you, I wasn't lying and it wasn't embellishing. I have shared the story with a few people that say, look, it is possible. I'm sure a few have already reached out to you on this as well, but, you know, if you had a peer, you know, if I brought in one of your peers, you know, off camera and said, you know, they want to do this, what's the starting point?
2: Oh, you know, getting really, it's getting everybody internally aligned behind this, right? I think that's the biggest thing. I was, like I said, in the beginning, it's huge kudos to my team internally our our pricing team right our operations team our finance team you have to get everybody on the same page and make them your champion internally i mean even with our just our overall portal i had a huge you know win with them and our internal IT team who championed and supported it and found dollars for me to get the portal done and upgraded and get through all three phases so i think it's you know it's important to really surround yourself with the, the smartest people you can in the organization and get them to understand how valuable this can be to driving sales and really driving, you know, top and bottom line growth from a partner perspective, right? I think we, you know, you and I lived this for many years, right? So you you have a sales problem from our sales people at it. To me, if we have a sales problem, you got to throw more automation at your partner channel so that they can be more successful and drive velocity and growth. And so that's what we did. And that's what we're seeing. And I think there's always a a different way to look at it. And so I would say, start with your biggest champions in the organization that can help you be successful because you can never do it alone. Right. It's a, it's a team effort.
1: Yeah. Well, Kim, this is, you know, I, I again, I applaud Hitachi and Bentara for what they've done. What's next? What's, you know, where you, where do you take this next? You said you're going to be rolling it out globally. So yeah. what does that look like and how does, how does this continue to evolve?
2: So we're going to roll it out globally, like I said. And so the big next step for us, and it goes to uh, the announcement that we had today. So we talked about our, we launched a new hybrid cloud message and where we're going in the market. You know, I think we've been a little bit quiet about where we're going in the, challenges that are facing our customers and getting data in the right place at the right time, our next generation. And one of the things we're looking at is how do we support the as a service, hybrid cloud, uh, really that all of those models, right? And so when you think about where we're going where we are today, right, with very static sort of, you know, stayed and true methodology around pricing and quoting, that's a very different model right when you look at as a service and so we're going to expand this into an as a service leasing our everflex model this uh, really a compute unified compute converge hyper hyper converge solution um, driving that with our new uh, solutions that are out there Um, so anybody who wants to go out and look we have a ton of new videos out on hitachiventara.com and they can see all about it but our next generation will include that hybrid cloud solution and how we support our partners and our customers through that journey. So a lot of our competitors are leaving partners to the side. We are embracing our partner community. We want them to be as successful as we are in this hybrid cloud journey and driving as a service. And so we're going to drag them right along with us in, in an automated fashion.
1: So, you know, and that's leadership right there. And I also want to say, in addition to checking out Hitachi's videos, you should also check out Kim King's blog on the Hitachi uh, Ventura leadership site. I mean, you you know, there's a lot of great thoughts on there, but Kim, I have to say, and this is obviously biased, but it's true, is that you have some really great thoughts in the blog. So you've, you've posted on that site as well.
2: Thanks, Larry. I appreciate
1: it. So Kim, I really want to thank you for joining us and sharing what you've done at Hitachi Ventura in terms of helping partners you know, get quotes faster and better. Everyone, Kim King, the Senior Vice President of Strategic Partners and Alliances at Hitachi Ventura. Thanks, Larry. And I want to thank all of you for once again joining in on, joining us here on Changing Channels. Technology is changing the world and at Channelonomics, we're tracking how that's changing the channel. So please jump in again next time.
0: Thank you for joining Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, a production of Channelnomics, with the support of our production team at Modern Podcasting. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends. For more information about Channelnomics services and insights, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and check out our website at Channelnomics.com. Channelnomics is a registered trademark of, and Changing Channels is copyright by, 2112 Enterprises, LLC.